0: Amen. Amen. Go ahead and take your seats. How about we just sing that song a few more times? We could just do that. Well, good morning, everybody. I'm Pastor Brian. I have the uh, privilege of serving as your discipleship and outreach pastor here. And uh, this morning, it's my privilege to open up God's Word with you. And we're going to be continuing in our series in 1 Samuel. And the title of the series is In Search of a King. And we're going to see that in full force This morning, searching for a king. Uh, But I do want to warn you, we're going to be in 1 Samuel uh, 28, and it is a challenging text. It's challenging for a couple of reasons. Uh, One is because it's kind of weird. Uh, We're going to see some mediums and the appearance uh, of a dead prophet. Uh, We're going to see God ignoring the king that he anointed. But it's not just weird, it's also really negative. Uh, This whole passage is about the destructive nature and downward spiral of sin. Particularly, it's about the downfall and demise of Saul. And, and the passage essentially reads like, Saul sins, suffers his consequences, he sins again, he's rebuked, there's more consequences, and then there's sorrow in his sin. So it's not necessarily the most positive passage. So I think my job this morning, as well as your job as, as noble Bereans, is, is for us to see the proverbial forest through the trees, there's a lot, of, a lot of trees for us to get wrapped around in this passage, a lot, of, a lot of trees that we could look at and stare at and contemplate, but we need to look beyond that and we need to see the, the beauty of the forest. And there is a tremendous beauty in this passage. There's something glorious and beautiful in seeing God's plan unfold for his people, despite their sin. And hopefully we can see that this morning. And the title of the message is A Desperate king, a desperate king. So many of you know, I, I spent a number of years in the military, and uh, a lot of times, you know, you would see commanders would get fired, or we would call it getting relieved. And I know that happens in the, the corporate and the civilian world as well, but uh, what I remember in particular is, so usually it, it would happen because uh, of something egregious they did, or maybe a number of wrong things, but essentially their, their sin or their wrongness finds them out, and they get fired or relieved. And usually what would happen is a statement would be put out, by by the press or higher headquarters, and it would almost always say that they have lost trust and confidence, that they have lost trust and confidence in that person to carry out the duties that they were expected to to carry out. And that's what we're going to see happening to Saul in this passage. Saul's sin catches up with him, and he no longer has God's trust and confidence to lead God's people. And from there, he's going to go and look for help. He's going to look for a word from God. And he is eventually confronted by God's word. And he is confronted about his sin. And he is confronted with God's plans, not his own. And that's the main idea for us as well. That's the message for us. That God, through the sovereignty and goodness of his word, confronts our sin and reveals God's perfect plan. God's word confronts our sin and reveals God's perfect plan. We're going to see how this unfolds, but first, let's pray. Father, we thank you for the privilege it is to gather together. We thank you for the privilege of your, of reading and, and, and opening up your word. God, we thank you for the ways in which you reveal yourself to us in your word. And so we ask, God, that you would take away the distractions of life, of today, of whatever's going on, and help us to focus. Help us, Lord. I, we pray, that, I pray that you would open up our ears to hear, open up our eyes to see what you have for us in your word. Help us to see our desperate need for you and your word. Help us to see the sin that you confront, and help us to see the beauty of your perfect plan. So God, have your way with us this morning. Teach us from your word. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right, so open up your Bibles to 1 Samuel 28. And uh, first of all, to, to kind of summarize a little bit, we actually covered verses 1 and 2 last week, um, at the end of last week. And, and what was going on there is that David agreed to fight with the Philistines against the Israelites, or the people that he was, uh, who he's been called to lead eventually. And so we were left wondering if David will, in fact, fight for the Philistines, if he will, in fact, take up Achish's offer to be his bodyguard for life. Achish is the Philistine king. And it's significant because if David takes him up on that offer and becomes Achish's bodyguard for life, well, then he's not going to be able to fulfill God's calling and God's plan for him. So we'll actually find out next week what what happens with David. But in order for us to understand God's plan for David, we need to understand God's plan for Saul, who is the current king. And that's what we're going to find out here. So I'm not going to read the whole chapter at one time, we're going to take it in uh, three different sections. Uh, so first, we're going to read verses 3 through 10. And here we're going to see that Saul is desperately trying to find a word from God, or a word from somewhere, or someone. He is in desperate need of a word from God. So let's read 3 through 10. Now Samuel had died, and all Israel had mourned for him and buried him in Ramah, his own city. And Saul had put the mediums and the necromancers out of the land. The Philistines assembled and came and encamped at Shunem, and Saul gathered all Israel, and they encamped at Gilboa. When Saul saw the army of the Philistines, he was afraid, and his heart trembled greatly. And when Saul inquired of the Lord, the Lord did not answer him, either by dreams or by Urim or by prophets. Then Saul said to his servant, Seek out for me a woman who is a medium, that I may go to her and inquire of her. And his servant said to him, Behold, there is a medium in Endor. So Saul disguised himself and put on other garments and went, he and two men with him. And they came to the woman by night, and he said, Divine for me a spirit, and bring up for me whomever I shall name to you. And the woman said to him, Surely you know what Saul has done, that he's cut off the mediums and the necromancers from the land. Why then are you laying a trap for my life to bring about my death? But Saul swore to her by the Lord, As the Lord lives, no punishment shall come upon you for this thing. So... What we're seeing here is his desperate need of a word from God. But in particular, we're going to look first at verses 3 through 6, which we're going to see his desperate circumstances. Desperate circumstances. So we, we, we see first that Samuel has died. But that's actually not news for us. We actually knew that. It was back in chapter 25 we were told that Samuel uh, that had died. So why is it repeated here? Because it's an important part of the setting of the story. You see, Samuel was often the mouthpiece of God for Saul. The man who spoke God's truth to Saul is now dead. And we should also remember, it's not just the prophet who's not there. It's not just Samuel. Right? But where are the priests? Oh, he killed them. There was one that lived, and where did he go? He's with David. And he has, probably has the ephod with, with him, which is at the, the, the original uh, Urim and Thummim. So if Saul had that, it's a replica but so the priests are gone. The prophet is now dead. David, he's chased off. His son, Jonathan, has pledged his loyalty to David. So if Saul, if we could say that he was hanging on by a thread, Samuel was Saul's last thread of connection to God. So death, So the death of Samuel, it reads and it feels symbolic of the death of Saul's anointing, the end of his reign as king. And then we get some more insight into the setting of the story. We see that Saul removed the mediums and the necromancers from the land. To Saul's credit, this was actually the right thing to do. Saul had commanded this of the Israelites. We see this in Leviticus 19 and 20. And then I want to read from you from Deuteronomy chapter 18. I'm going to read verses 10 and 12. There shall not be found among you anyone who burns his son or his daughter as an offering, anyone who practices divination or tells fortunes, or interprets omens, or a sorcerer, or a charmer, or a medium, or a necromancer, or one who inquires of the dead. For whoever does these things is an abomination to the Lord. And because of these abominations, the Lord your God is driving them out before you. So Saul, he's done the right thing in getting rid of them. But we're going to come back to this later and see why this becomes more important as part of the setting for the story. So as we come to the end of verse 3, we basically see that Saul has nowhere to turn. And then trouble comes. Because the Philistines line up across from the Israelites, and Saul looks, and and it says that Saul was afraid, and his heart trembled greatly. He was afraid. This is the anointed king of God's people. This is the one who God said would reign over the people and save them from their enemies. This is the king who once rebuked the people for their fear of God's enemies. But Saul is also the one, and follow me here, he's also the one who offered an unlawful sacrifice in chapter 13, who made a rash vow in chapter 14, who failed to destroy God's enemies in chapter 15, who was absent in leading God's people against Goliath in chapter 17, who's been trying to trap and kill David since chapter 18. you get the picture? You see the pattern of decline? And now here he is, scared and trembling in the face of God's enemies. He's trusting in himself instead of trusting in God. He's afraid. He's afraid of death, afraid of losing his kingdom or his power or his wealth. He's afraid of losing what's important to him. And maybe we can relate. Right? I'm sure you've been afraid before, maybe overwhelmed by circumstances, maybe uncertain about the future. And what is the best thing for us to do when we're in those circumstances? To trust in the Lord, to seek God, and if somebody comes to me as a pastor and says, "Oh, I'm feeling alone, or I'm feeling overwhelmed, or I'm scared," what should I do? 100 out of 100 times, I'm going to tell them to seek the Lord, to trust in the Lord. Now, I might give them some other practical advice or something, but they need to trust in the Lord, and that is what Saul is in desperate need of here. He needs God's help. He needs God's guidance. So, what does he do? Verse six, he inquires of the Lord. Good job, right? Not so fast. It says, he inquires of the Lord, and the Lord does not answer. Why? Why would the Lord not answer? That almost seems unfair. I think there's two reasons why God does not answer. There's probably many more reasons, but I want to focus on two reasons why why I think God doesn't answer Saul here. First of all, I think it's safe to say that Saul was not genuinely seeking God. We get this as we look at the, the context of this chapter, as we look at the context of the whole book of 1 Samuel. We don't see any confession or repentance or humility. Saul was looking for a genie in a bottle. Right? He was rubbing the, the, the lucky rabbit's foot, taking, taking the, the God in a box off the shelf and, hey God, I need your help. But God doesn't operate that way. God doesn't operate that way. Have you ever had a, a friend or a family member you don't hear from in years, they never want to talk to you until they need some money or they need some help? That's that's essentially what Saul's doing here. But there's another reason, I think a greater reason why God does not answer Saul. It's because Saul is a sinner, just like you and I. And his sins have separated him from God, just like our sins separate us from God. Listen to Isaiah 59, verse 2. Behold, the the Lord's hand is not shortened, that it cannot save, or his ear dull, that it cannot hear, but... Your iniquities have made a separation between you and your God, and your sins have hidden his face from you so that he does not hear. God doesn't answer Saul because Saul has continually lived in sin. And this is Saul's greatest distress. It's not Samuel being dead. It's not the Philistines. It's the withholding of God's presence. What he needs, just like what we need in the midst of our sin and when we're facing a time of crisis, is to hear from God. We need God's word. We need God's presence. We need God to speak. But here's where we need to make a very important distinction. At Saul, he was dependent upon God speaking through a variety of different means. Through dreams, prophets, priests, a burning bush, whatever he could find, right? But he got nothing. God did not answer. But for us, there is a much different story. As New Testament or New Covenant believers, we do have God's word. We have God's word in the form of the scriptures that are written here for us. We have God's word in the person and the work of Jesus Christ, who is the word who became flesh. We have the Holy Spirit that dwells within us. Yes, we are sinners like Saul, and our sin does, in fact, separate us from God. But we do not consider ourselves absent of God's word. We have God's word with us. Whether we accept it, or reject it, or sometimes ignore it, we do have it. And we must praise God for that. We must praise God for that and not take it for granted. But Saul was not so fortunate. He does not have God's word at his disposal. So what should he do? He should confess and repent and turn to God, right? So as we look at verse 7, in fact, you can look at verse 7 with me if you want, and here's how I want to read verse 7. I want to read this. Saul said to his servants, go and get me some unblemished animals so I can offer a sacrifice and repent of my sins and start living for God. That is definitively not what he says. In fact, what we see in verses 7 through 10 is that in the midst of such desperate circumstances where he is separated from God, Saul turns to desperate measures. He turns to desperate measures. Instead of seeking God, he says, I'm going to break my own laws, because he's the one that sent them out of the land. He says, I'm going to break my own laws, as well as the statutes and commands of the God that I'm actually looking for, and go to the forbidden mediums. Now, I do, do believe that Saul still wants to hear from God. But God won't talk to him directly, so he wants to go to the one person who used to tell him what God had to say, which was Samuel. But there's only one problem. Samuel's dead. So he goes to the medium, which is forbidden by God. So in his quest to find a word from God, Saul, he's not simply going to another church to find God. He's going off the rails. So let's look. Let's see how we see some of this. First, we see him disguising himself and going under the cover of night. Here's a word of advice for you, church. This is free advice. If you are having to disguise yourself and go under the cover of darkness to do whatever it is you're doing, then you probably shouldn't do it. Unless it's Halloween or something. Maybe there's some exceptions, but probably shouldn't do it. Not to mention, there is something deeply profound in this passage about Saul putting on other garments to have to do this. He that means he shed his royal garments. And we're going to come back to that in a little bit. He also had to go into enemy territory because Endor was actually on the other side of where the Philistines had lined up. So listen to this. Saul is giving up his identity as God's chosen king in order to venture into enemy territory and pursue sin. There was nothing good about that statement. That statement was hard to write. This is the opposite of what we should do. God tells us in Colossians that we are to put away our old self and put on the new identity that we're given in Christ. But Saul's doing the opposite. He's he's putting away the identity that God has given him in order to pursue sin. And I think we can see why this guy is about to be fired as the king. And then he comes to the medium and he asks her to bring up a spirit. And I love her response. Because she doesn't even know that she's talking to Saul, yet she rebukes him. She says, "Um,
1: don't you know that
0: Saul kicked out the mediums and the necromancers? She didn't even know she was talking to him. So you'd think that he would be like, oh yeah, that's right, because God forbids it. But nope. Instead, he responds by using the Lord's name in vain. He swears by the Lord, as the Lord lives, she will not be harmed. Now, she might not see the irony in that, but we do, and it's thick. Because first of all, Saul is swearing by the God who doesn't even talk to him anymore. And second, he's essentially saying to her, don't worry, the God who forbids and prohibits your evil practices and who calls you an abomination and promises to cut people off who practice the stuff that you practice, yeah, that God will protect you. That's nonsense. He's using God's name in vain. He's promising something that God does not promise. So you can see the depths, of the, the depths of sin that Saul has sunk to. Now before we move on, I don't want us to think that there's no application for us here. I know I said a few minutes ago that we do have God's, worth of, God's word with us, and we, ha- we do have it abundantly. But that doesn't mean that we are immune from finding ungodly or even sinful ways of trying to hear from God. Unfortunately, there are some Christians, and even some churches, that don't understand the seriousness with which God forbids this stuff. So let's talk for a brief moment about one of the elephants in the room, which is the mediums and the necromancers. So I want to talk about it for a brief moment. And here's some things you can include, based on what we saw back in Deuteronomy 18. Mediums and necromancers, you can include fortune tellers, palm readers, Ouija boards, grave sucking, seances, even astrology. These things are forbidden by God. He prohibits them. Why? Why would he prohibit them? Because they are sinful and they are evil. Any time that we start seeking or even just messing around with supernatural things apart from God, we are playing with fire. Almost quite literally. Because those things are either fake and worthless, or they are evil and demonic. And oftentimes there's a little bit of both going on, or in different, different ways, different people. But instead of trying to figure it out, just avoid it. Don't do it. Don't mess with it. If you are looking for something to help you make sense of the world around you, to help you make sense of reality or the future, then the place that you need to turn is to God and His Word, not any of that garbage. Saul was desperate for a word from God, and he could not find it. We don't have that, the luxury of that excuse. When we find ourselves turning to self-help books or motivational speakers, or horoscopes, or palm readers, we have no excuse because we have God's Word. And my point isn't to rebuke you guys. My point is to remind us to be thankful that we do have God's Word and to not take that for granted, to seek God in His Word. But back to the story, okay? We're, because we have a much bigger picture to look at. There's a much bigger plan that is unfolding here. So let's look at verses 11 through 19. Here in verses 11 through 19, we're going to see Saul, he finally receives a word from God. Now, he doesn't get it directly, it comes through Samuel. But in that word that he gets, he's going to be reminded of God's word to him. He's going to be confronted by God's word. And that's what happens when we open up the scriptures or when we encounter Jesus, is that we are confronted by God's word. So let's see how Saul is confronted by God's word. Let's look at verses 11 through 19. Then the woman said, Whom shall I bring up for you? He said, Bring up Samuel for me. When the woman saw Samuel, she cried out with a loud voice. And the woman said to Saul, Why have you deceived me? You are Saul. The king said to her, Do not be afraid. What do you, what do you see? And the woman said to Saul, I see, a, I see a God coming up out of the earth. And he said to her, What is his appearance? And she said, An old man is coming up, and he is wrapped in a robe. And Saul knew that it was Samuel, and he bowed with his face to the ground and paid homage. Then Samuel said to Saul, Why have you disturbed me by bringing me up? And Saul answers, I am in great distress. For the Philistines are warring against me, and God has turned away from me and answers me no more, either by prophets or by dreams. Therefore, I have summoned you to tell me what I should do. You can see the emphasis in that passage. And Samuel said, Why then do you ask me, since the Lord has turned from you and become your enemy?" There's a few items that I want to point out here. These are not exhaustive of this passage because there's a lot going on here. But there's a few things I want us to see that Saul is being confronted with that we would do well to consider ourselves. First, I want us to see the supremacy of God's word. The supremacy of God's word. This is the other elephant in the room. The dead spirit of Samuel. Is that even possible? Was it really Samuel? Samuel? Some commentators have tried to explain this away, but I think the scriptures are quite clear here. It, Samuel shows up. Samuel speaks. The medium is surprised when she sees Samuel, probably because she's not used to seeing God's prophets show up in her seances. And Even Saul acknowledges that it's Samuel and bows down to him. After all, why can't it be Samuel? Don't we believe that God is sovereign? That he's sovereign over the physical, and the spiritual realm, particularly over the spiritual realm. We know that Jesus and his disciples had to cast out demons. We know that he can part a sea. We know that he can speak through a burning bush or a donkey. We know that he can raise the dead to life. So why couldn't he speak through the appearance of one of his prophets? Perhaps, just perhaps, God in his sovereignty is using this opportunity to accomplish his purpose. Maybe he's taking Saul's plans and the medium's sinful actions and he's turning them on their head and using it in order to say what he wants to say or what he wants Samuel to say. Because church, God speaks to us on his terms, not on ours. He speaks to us according to his will and reveals his plan. His word is supreme, But here we aren't just confronted by the supremacy of God's word and God's speaking. We also see God confronting sin. God's word confronts sin. In verse 15, Samuel said, he basically said, what do you want? Why am I here? And Saul says, I am in great distress for the Philistines are warring against me and God has turned away from me and so I have summoned you to come tell me what to do. Now considering that this story is really the culmination of Saul's downward spiral of sin, this verse really captures his heart and his attitude. And really, it captures our heart and our attitude when we are sinning as well. It's the attitude of me, myself, and I. Which is really at the root of all sin, right? We put ourselves first over God, we put our concerns and our plans ahead of God's. Samuel said, w- w- why, w- what do you want? Why am I here? And Saul says, oh, I am in great distress. He said, woe is me. Can't you see how bad things are for me? How hard my life is? He says, the Philistines are warring against me. The fact is, the Philistines were not warring against Saul. They were warring against God and God's people. But Saul doesn't care about them. Saul cares about himself. If Saul had the right perspective on this, it would look a lot like Moses when Moses had said, hey God, don't even send us out if you're not going to go with us. And Moses said, it's not about me or about us. We want you to defend your name. None of that's coming from Saul. Saul is consumed with himself. Now he does say, and God has turned away from me. So he rightly recognizes that that is part of his distress. But I think based on the context of what we're seeing here, We we can assume that that's probably not coming from a a place of faith. It's probably coming from a place of um, what what God owes him. God won't talk to me. And then he tells Samuel, I have summoned you to tell me what to do. Saul is so deceived in his own sin that he thinks he summons Samuel. But I want to be clear. I want to be clear, church. Samuel is not there at Saul's bidding. Samuel is not there at the medium's bidding. Samuel is there to do God's bidding. Samuel is there in submission to the sovereignty of God, not in submission to some king or some medium. Saul is consumed with selfishness. And you know what Saul never mentions in all of this? He never mentions his greatest foes, which, first of all, is himself, his own sin. He never mentions his own sin. He also never mentions David. Instead, this is all about what he wants and what he wants to hear and what he thinks God or Samuel should tell him. He is full of himself and he's only concerned about himself. He's not uh, not concerned about God's people or God's plan. But really, it's no different for us, as we mentioned earlier in our selfishness, but our sin is rooted in our selfishness. You can ask any spouse or parent, Right, what, what causes the most conflict? It's people being selfish. But Saul's selfishness and his self-deception are about to be exposed. Because Sam, when Samuel speaks next, speaking on behalf of God, he addresses both of those issues. He says, and I'm picking up in, in, in verse 17 here, he says, The Lord has done to you as he spoke by me. The Lord has torn the kingdom out of your hand and given it to your neighbor David because you did not obey the voice of the Lord and did not carry out his fierce wrath against Amalek therefore the Lord has done this thing to you this day he says it's too late Saul he says stop pretending that you didn't know any better you've been warned you know the command commands that God gave you and you have disobeyed and then he also says and your kingdom is coming to an end it's David's turn Samuel is telling Saul, You had your chance, and now it's time to face the consequences. Saul is being confronted with his sin. And God's Word does that for us too. It gives us a standard for godly living, it gives us the commands of God, and it rebukes us in our sin, which is a good thing because it also gives us the solution to our sin. God's Word confronts sin. Saul has been called out. Don't be like Saul, who repeatedly ignored the words of God and then asked for a word from God and then got upset because God called him out. For Saul, it's too late. It's too late for Saul, but it's not too late for us. Because thankfully for us, God has a better plan. And one of the other things that we are confronted with in God's word is his plan. God's plan, his perfect plan, is revealed in his word. So I want you to follow me on a short trip here through the motif or the symbolism of the robe in 1 Samuel. At some point when Saul became king, probably back in chapter 9 or 10, he would have received a robe. And that represented his kingship and his God-given authority. And then in chapter 15, we saw Saul, when he's rebuked by Samuel, he actually tears Samuel's robe, right? He tries to grab it and he tears it. And that robe was a symbol of Samuel's God-given authority. And how did Samuel respond when his robe was torn? That is when he told Saul, the Lord has torn the kingdom from your hands and given it to someone better than you. So surely when, there's, when the robe of Samuel, when he sees the robe of Samuel, there, there, there's some, uh, some memory built into that. And then in chapter 18, we see Jonathan takes his robe, which symbolized that it's David's son, so he was next in line for the throne. He takes his robe and gives it to David, essentially saying, I recognize you as the next king. And then in chapter 24, we see David, when he was in the cave, he cut off a corner of Saul's robe. And David ended up feeling bad about that, but we still see the symbolism of of David basically saying, your authority is limited and I've I've already got a piece of it. But then we find ourselves here in chapter 28. And back in verse 8, we saw, we, we saw Saul shedding his robe. He takes it off. He essentially says, this robe is not important to me. He says the responsibility and the God-given authority that God has given to me is not as important as me getting what I want. And he takes off his robe. And then when Samuel shows up in verse 14, he's wearing what? A robe. A robe. You can feel the tension. You can cut it with a knife when Saul has no robe and sees Samuel appear in the robe. And then it culminates here in verse 17 when Samuel says, The Lord has done to you as he spoke by me. The Lord has torn the kingdom out of your hand and given it to your neighbor David. Does that sound familiar? That's what he said back in chapter 15 to him. So Samuel reminds Saul of the kingdom being torn from his hands and given to David. But it's not just that he repeats what he said in chapter 15, but now we have this visual representation of this in the robe. Saul no longer has his robe, his sign of kingly authority. And Samuel says, you don't need your robe because it's being given to David. Oh, by the way, David already has one. He has Jonathan's, which means he's next in line for the throne. And that time has come. Okay, so what does this have to do with God revealing his plan? Well, you see, Saul was the king that the people asked for. He didn't want to give them the king, and he warned them. He said, in that day you will cry out because of your king, whom you've chosen, but the Lord will not answer you. I think we're seeing that come to fruition here, in a way. So he gave them a king, God gave them the king in Saul, and that king was a disaster. God knew that Saul would be a disaster as a king, so I can't help but think that God gave them Saul to show them what a bad idea was to have a human king. He basically said, you want to trust in a man or a political figure? Okay, here you go. Watch this. They placed their trust in a king, and that king failed them. That king plunged into darkness, but there's a light at the end of the tunnel. Or maybe the better illustration is not a light at the end of the tunnel, but maybe it's more like a, one of those dimmer knobs, right? Where you can turn up the light a little bit at a time. Because we can see God sort of turning up that light as, as David, as he hands the kingdom over to David. David's not perfect, right? He's also a sinner. We've seen that. We'll see it some more. But he's a man after God's heart. He's a better king will at least attempt to lead his people according to God's ways. So with David, we begin to see that light increasing, turning it up a little bit. We begin to see the light and the hope of a good king. But in a few weeks, we're going to be in 2 Samuel chapter 7 on Easter, where we begin to see the light and the hope of the perfect king, where that light gets turned all the way up. the light and the hope of the perfect king, Jesus. Jesus is the perfect king, the one without sin, the one who will lead his people to God. He's the one whose kingdom can never be destroyed or never be shaken, a king who offers the promise of eternal security. For Saul, his kingdom and his life are ending. He must suffer the punishment for his sins, and that punishment is death. And that may seem harsh to some of you, but that's the punishment for sin. It's also the punishment for our sin. God had told Adam back in Genesis, if you do this, you will surely die. In Romans, we read that the wages of sin is death. And now Saul faces that punishment. Saul is separated from God because of his sins, and now he must die with the weight and the guilt of his sin upon himself. But for us, even though we too should be separated from God because of our sins, the weight and the guilt of our sins were placed upon Jesus. He bore those sins and took our punishment for us. 1 Peter 3.18 tells us that Christ suffered once for all sins, the righteous one for his unrighteous people to bring them to God. You see, David will be a better king than Saul was. But Jesus is the king that Saul and David never were or ever could be. Jesus leads his people perfectly. Jesus is the word that reigns supreme. Jesus is the solution when we have been confronted with our sins. Jesus is the perfect king who ultimately ends up on the throne. That's where we see God's plan being revealed. What Saul did was he put himself on the throne of his own life. And in our sin, we often do the same thing. And what we need to do is take ourselves off the throne and give God his rightful place as the king and the Lord of our lives. This is for believers and unbelievers, right? Just because you've confessed Jesus as your Savior doesn't mean that you've made him the King and the Lord of your life. Now, to be clear, to be very clear, Jesus is the King of kings and the Lord of lords, regardless of how you respond to him. But if we don't want to find ourselves in the same place as Saul, then we must place our faith and trust in that King and submit to him. So as we move into the final verses here in 20 through 25, we're asking ourselves this question. Well, first, how does Saul respond to God's words? But second, how will we respond to God's word? So let's look at responding to God's word here in verse 20 through 25. Then Saul fell at once full length on the ground, filled with fear, because the words of Samuel... And there was no strength in him, for he, had not, for he had eaten nothing all day and all night. And the woman came to Saul, and when she saw that he was terrified, she said to him, Behold, your servant has obeyed you. I have taken my life in my hand, and have listened to, to what you have said to me. Now therefore you also obey your servant. Let me set a morsel of bread before you and eat, that you may have strength when you go on your way. And he refused and said, I will not eat. But his servants, together with the woman, urged him, and he listened to their words. So he arose from the earth and sat on the bed. Now the woman had a fattened calf in the house and she quickly killed it. She took flour and kneaded it and baked it, then baked unleavened bread of it. And she put it before Saul and his servants and they ate. Then they rose and went away that night. It's a sad place that we find Saul in here. Being told to obey a medium. What we find first is we find Saul is still filled with fear. We saw at the beginning of this passage that he was filled with fear and that he expended all of this energy seeking answers yet he is still filled with fear. Because just like Saul when we run to other places in our fear we will continue to fear. When we trust in man instead of God we will continue to be scared. When we trust in ourself instead of God we will continue to be in fear. But church... Has God given us a spirit of fear? God has given us a spirit of power and of love and of self-control that we find in 2 Timothy. In Romans 8, we see that we did not receive a spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but the spirit of what? Adoption. Adoption as sons by whom we cry out, Abba, Father. So church, we can live in a constant state of fear like Saul or we can live in faith. We can live in the confidence of a whole different kingdom, the one where Jesus reigns supreme as the king. But that only comes if we trust in God and trust in his word and in his plan and in his promises. And then let's close by looking at Saul's final meal. And here we'll discuss the response of being hopeless or hopeful. In chapter 9, it was a glorious meal. Saul, we, we, we found Saul eating with a prophet. He's sitting at the head of the table. He's eating the very best portions. And, and that meal concludes with his anointing as the king of God's people. But now we find Saul eating alone or maybe with some godless servants in, in the territory of God's enemies, eating a domestic calf, and there's nobody there to help him except maybe this medium who God considers an abomination. He finds himself being served and, and even obeying a medium. And the word tells us that he had no strength, and we can conclude that he had no hope. In many ways... This last meal for Saul is the antithesis of the last supper of another king. Saul faces imminent death as the punishment for his sin, and he sulks in self-pity, and he has no hope. Jesus would also face imminent death as punishment for sins, but not for his sin, for our sin. And instead of sulking in self-pity with no hope, Jesus offers his disciples great hope and great peace. Yes, he did cry out to God in distress. He said, please take this cup from me. But when God didn't do that, what was Jesus' response? It was not, it certainly wasn't, to run to mediums or fortune tellers or self-help books or Facebook groups. Instead, what did he say? Not my will, but his be done, but yours be done. Saul relied on his own plans and his own ways. Jesus submits to God's plan and God's ways. And we would do well to follow the example of Jesus rather than Saul. That's deep, right? That's what you came here for today was for me to tell you that you're better off following Jesus than Saul. You're welcome for that. So we can be hopeless as we trust in ourselves and rely on our own strength and we'll ultimately be disappointed and desperate. Or we can be full of hope, relying on God's perfect plan and his promise of a perfect king. If you're not a believer, you need to heed the warning of our separation from God because of our sins and listen to God's word. God's word here in the Bible about God's Word, His Son, and place your faith and your trust in Jesus as your Savior and your King. If you haven't done that, you need to do that. I'd be happy to talk to you about that some more. Come talk to me afterwards. Talk to one of the pastors or elders. Grab the person you came with, and let's talk about that. Because you need to place your faith and your trust in Jesus. For the rest of us, we must not take for granted the blessing of, and the privilege and really the grace and the mercy of god in giving us his word to confront our sin and to reveal his perfect plan for a perfect king let's pray